0: Today we are finishing up our four-week series. We've been in Jonah uh, for a while here, and uh, so we're going to finish up Jonah today. Next week is Palm Sunday. That's going to be a lot of fun, and as Pastor Albert told you, in two weeks is Easter. Easter. We're going to have our Easter celebration. Let me tell you, there's this rumor going around town that there's going to be a resurrection. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. And so we celebrate. We're going to celebrate. Make sure you're here. Uh, Let me ask you this. Is anybody out there got their card filled out? Their who is my neighbor? Who was here last week? Right? You got your who is my neighbor card. Hopefully you got it filled out. I got mine filled out and I, I even keep it in my wallet just so I can see it all the time. Got my names on there. I'm praying for them. Are you praying for your names? Are you praying for those people? Those are human beings that God loves, right? Pray for those names. Um, hallelujah. This is the card if you can't see it. There it is. So it, it's a three-step process. We made it really easy for you, right? Just to help, help us kind of understand what it is we're doing. The first thing we do is we pray for them. When you, when you think of that person, God puts that person in your heart. It might be a neighbor. It might be somebody you work with. Right? It might be a family member. It might be somebody you carpool with, or you go to school with, you're in class with. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Or some, maybe they're just far from God, and they're not really going to church. And so this is a name that God drops in your heart. The first thing you want to do is pray for them, because nothing is more important than prayer. There's nothing more powerful than prayer. We just coat that whole situation in prayer. We thank you. We, we, we ask the Lord to, to bless them and to show himself real in their life. But see, we're also praying for God to open up opportunities opportunities for us to be a blessing to them, where we can go up and bless them in some way, help them out in some way, and talk to them, share the love of Jesus with them. And then after we're praying for them, see, then we got to take another step, and that is engage with them, right? we got to open our mouths and talk to them, right? So that's the second step. After we're praying for them, we want to talk to them. We want to, you know, create that relationship, form a relationship. It might be somebody that, you know, you don't know that well. It might be the person who just gives you your coffee at Starbucks, you know, every day or something like that. But you guys, you've, you've, you formed a little rapport, you know, they know you as the guy with the purple hat, you know, or something like that. So maybe it's time, time to take that to the next level, introduce yourself, talk to them. And then what you want to do after you, after you've engaged them, you want to invite them to church because that's what we're wanting we're wanting them to come to church where they can hear about Jesus, where they can have this personal experience with Jesus, and they're going to experience the love of Jesus. They're going to see a whole bunch of. They're going to come to this church, see a whole bunch of people who like each other and love each other. People who don't even have maybe a whole lot in common sometimes, but they still love each other. the The, the Bible says that they will know us by our love. Isn't that awesome? They'll know us by our love. And so they're going to come here and see. man, there's all these people like, from all different walks of life. And they all look different. They all have different styles and everything. And, and they all like, or act like they like each other. You know, what is going on here? And it's Jesus. Jesus is going on here, right? All right. So I just want to encourage you. Don't let this go. When we do this, when we insert ourselves into this process, see, at, at Generations, we're saying everybody makes disciples, Right? Is it, is, it, is it just my job to make disciples? No. It's your job. It's my job. It's everybody's job. It's A.V. It's the greeters. It's you. Everybody makes disciples. And one of the easiest ways, the simplest ways in this season to do that is just invite them to church on Easter Sunday. Because everybody goes to church on Easter, right? right? Even people who don't go to church, they're probably like, yeah, we should probably go to church somewhere. The kids will have fun. Well, the kids are going to have a great time here, right? They're going to have a blast. Beggar. You, see, you let them know. They're going to have a great time. They're going to have some really cool music there, and, and they're going to preach a good message, and it's really going to bless you. And Invite them. You've got to invite them, though. They're not going to come by accident. They're not going to come just because they heard you go to a church, and they're going to beg you to please take them. It just won't happen. You've got to ask them, Statistics show most people, if asked, most people will say yes. Most people will say yes. We've given you an opportunity to think of three people. Three people to pray for, three people to engage with, three people to invite. And even if you're just batting 33%, that'll get you in the major leagues, right? Just one of those people come to church. That'll be incredible. We'll celebrate. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Okay, that was the sermon before the sermon. Here we go. Well, let's see. We're in the fourth chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Jonah, the fourth chapter. Uh, In this final chapter, this is good, Jonah's heart is finally exposed, and we get to the real root of his problem after all this time. And we also get a really pretty neat picture of the nature of God, his amazing love. We also get to see some of God's, uh, has a pretty shockingly good sense of humor. Um, Seriously, God is, is hilarious while teaching Jonah a lesson. He knows how to push Jonah's buttons. And so we just kind of get to sit back and watch this. Um, You know, if you just joined us, Jonah, you you know, Jonah's the fish story. You remember the fish story. You've probably heard of it before. So God calls Jonah to go preach to this city called Nineveh. Jonah says, no thanks. And he runs off and jumps on a boat to go to the other way. And he thinks, I'll get out because over water, I'll outrun God. Like you think. And then uh, God, of course, isn't daunted by that, sends a storm. Jonah gets thrown overboard. A fish swallows Jonah. He prays. He, he repents. He thanks God for bringing him to himself. God causes the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. Uh, and so that was an exciting uh, episode. And then uh, Jonah rushes himself off, comes to himself, and goes to Nineveh, uh, where he preaches the worst sermon ever, Um, Five words, that's all he does, because as we're going to find out, he's still got issues with this whole mission. Um, He preaches the worst sermon ever, thinking he's going to show God. And lo and behold, the whole city just repents, falls to his knees, repenting. Revival breaks out. Jonah can't believe it. Nobody can believe it. The revival breaks out, and that's where it leads us right now. You would think that Jonah at this point would be like, man, I am pretty good. I mean... I wasn't really trying with that sermon, but I am something else. This was awesome, but not so much. He doesn't feel this way at all. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Oh, Jonah is angry. As we're going to see he is hot. Jonah is like one of these angry, violent, shaking, vein popping out of his head, forehead kind of angry. He is so mad here because he, he's, he's an angry Christian. Can we just put it like this? You ever know any angry Christians? This is Jonah. Because, see, what's happened here is God has messed up. Okay? God's messed up. This is why Jonah's angry. All right? Um, and we, and we, know, we know this happens, right? When God doesn't do what we want, right? He's messed up. Um well, maybe that hadn't happened to you. Um, and we get so upset because, you know, if, it seems like God is operating under this, this illusion that, like, he's in charge. So we get really mad at that. God, you do not, you still don't understand how this works, right? It's frustrating when God doesn't realize that we sit on our throne, right? We sit on the throne. And, and he is here to do what we want him to do. It's very simple. Sometimes God doesn't understand. And that's the deal. We pray, and then God performs, right? Right? I'm not getting any support this morning. I don't know. Um, But God never seems to get that. And it gets so frustrating when God doesn't get that, right? Am I right? Okay, you guys are much better Christians than I gave you credit for. Okay, all right. You are passing the test. Way to go, way to go. Verse 2, let's look at this. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Actually, we didn't hear him say this, so this is implied. This is our first clue. Finally, here at the, towards the end of the story, we finally got our first clue. We're going to hear why he actually ran from God in the first place, in the beginning of the first chapter. That is what I tried to forestall. He's talking about this revival that's broken up. That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew this was going to happen. Here it is. Here it is. Jonah's entire motivation for all of his actions, all of his running, we see it right here. He's quoting God's character back to him. He's kind of like throwing it in his face, isn't he? I knew you were this way, all loving and gracious, right? I knew you would do this. That's why I ran, God, from keeping you to keep you from making this awful mistake. I hate these people, right? Jonah hates these people. They're awful. They're awful people, right? They're like cowboy fans and... They wear socks with their sandals, and right? Oh, no. They watch Glee. They're terrible people. Terrible. Don't <laughs> use their blinker when changing lanes. Those people. You know them? Awful people. Don't deserve to go to heaven. <laughs> now, now they're going to be my brothers and sisters, and I'll have to see them every day through eternity. <laughs> we find out the truth here of Jonah's heart, don't we? He didn't run because he was scared of Nineveh. He didn't run out of fear. It, It wasn't because it was too hard a task. God didn't call him to something too hard. It wasn't that, you know, they might kill him, which was a possibility. He ran because God is love. And Jonah is human. And sometimes that's very frustrating. God is love. And Jonah is human. See, Jonah actually does know the character of God. He's not ignorant here. He knows the character of God. The, you notice the prophets in the Old Testament. Whenever you look through the prophetic books or you see the stories of what, when they brought a word to Israel, they were famous for being these fire-breathing preachers, weren't they? Right? They, 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 they brought it. And, and they kinda, you almost get the impression they kind of relished getting to tell people they were going to hell. You know, like, They were the, kind those kind of preachers. It, it, it was kind of the best part of the job in their eyes for some of them. And, and Jonah, turns out, he's no different. That that was the one part he was going along with. Getting to tell them they were all going to burn. Right? But here we have this view of God. And notice this is Old Testament. So this is a view of God that we often miss in the God of the Old Testament. Here's this fire-breathing prophet, and he's actually angry at Jehovah God because he's gracious and compassionate. Sounds like we're talking about Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah he's gracious he's compassionate he's slow to anger he's abounding in love This is a God who the the king of Nineveh said he maybe he'll relent from sending calamity He this isn't a God who relishes sending destruction he actually prefers to turn to turn from destruction and The literal meaning it's so interesting in the verse in chapter Three, when it says that God relented, that he turned, the Hebrew word there is the Hebrew word for repent. It's, it's an amazing thing to study out. God, because the meaning of repent is what? To turn. That God turned, went a different direction. This is what God wants to do. He, he was setting them up for this the whole time, right? So, so this, is the, this is the picture of God. So we often, in our culture, we have, this, have it swapped. We have God as the angry one you know, and that we're the nice one. We'd be so much more gracious than God, we think, right? But it says that God is the one who relents. God is the one who has compassion and mercy. Now, this doesn't make Jonah look too good, does it? He's not coming out of this looking very good. I mean, how many people today can you think of would say, yeah, the the thing about God that infuriates me the most is, is definitely his love and compassion. That just chaps my hide, right? All that grace and mercy, I hate that about God. Most people don't say that, right? That's an unusual thing to get mad about. So so what's Jonah's deal? Why is he so angry about this? Why is he mad about grace and compassion? These are not the divine traits that usually we get angry about. We like this stuff. We like that, right? Angry, wrathful, vengeful God, that that we don't like so much. So what's Jonah's problem? And get this in verse 3. He's not just angry. He is suicidal. Check this out. He says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I just want to die. That's what Jonah's saying here. He's so enraged by God's compassion. Understand. I mean, that vein's about to explode in his forehead. He's so enraged by this that he would, God would have compassion on the Ninevites. He wants to die. So now, God speaks. This is good. Jonah does a whole lot of speaking in this story. He gets to talk a lot. But now God speaks. And get this picture of God in your mind. I, I, I might be a little warped, but I kind of think God's having a little bit of fun here. Jo- Jonah is just frantic. He's freaked out here, right? He is all weirded out. And you get the impression, I do, that God is hes pleased to just kind of let Jonah ramble and, and carry on like a crazy person a little bit here. And then God kind of, in verse 4, he gently pokes him. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? If I asked my wife that, I would be dead. Is it right for you to be angry? Yeah, don't ever do that. And Jonah is just livid. He doesn't even answer. He doesn't say anything back. Jonah's like, that is it. Throws the mic down and runs out of the city. in verse 5, he just storms out and sulks outside the city on a hill. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I were God, I would be frying Jonah about now. He'd be a crispy little piece of bacon. Right? But God is so patient. He's so patient. He is not done with Jonah yet. See, look, the greatest miracle ever has just happened. God has, has accomplished his will when it comes to Nineveh. He's been able to, he's brought the word. He, he's brought about the rescue, the salvation of this whole city, but he's not done. That, that's not everything he's after. He's, the lessons of life continue here. He's not done with Jonah. God is determined that someday Jonah will be a holy man. He's determined because God is good. But now, Let's take, a, let's take a pause here because it may help us understand something about why Jonah is so angry if we understand a little more of context of the story. It's not something we'll find in this text. Uh, the narrator here doesn't actually tell us because he assumes his readers there in the ancient world would, would understand what's going on and they would, his readers would understand no, no full well why Jonah was furious. Uh, but we see in history, we find out, and this is the reason why Jonah is so upset. Nineveh, The city of Nineveh, which uh, Jonah is called to prophesy against, is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire. Now, here's what's amazing about Assyria. This is effectively the first global world global superpower on the planet in the history of the world. They were the first. Here's what else is amazing about the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Not enough people know about these guys. They ruled from about 2600 B.C. all the way to 600 B.C., that's almost 2,000 years. 2,000 years, and a lot lot of us haven't even heard of them. 2,000 years, that that is an unheard-of reign, either before or since. Nobody lasts that long. It's, in fact, the Assyrian Empire is the longest-lasting empire on the planet. Did you know that? The Assyrians. No other empire on earth... uh, has matched the Assyrian Empire in its longevity or its completeness of rule, its totality of domination of the region. And one of the reasons they were unmatched is because they were also unmatched in their cruelty. The Assyrians were known for this. For nearly 2,000 years, imagine this, 2,000 years the Assyrians mastered the art of empire. Okay, There's a particular way you have to do it. You have to do empire for it to last, for it to stick. And they figured it out. They figured it out. It, it was based first and foremost on terrorizing your region, your citizens, as well as other armies. Terror. So in any society, you've you got to think in this, in this world that they were in, any society that exists in the middle of a chaotic world, You have a society, there's always going to be revolts, rebellions, people who rise up, you know, try to throw off their shackles and and try to have a better life or something like this. They always try to break free. You're always going to have this. That's the natural flow of things, kind of a rise and fall within the society. So when you have an empire like the Assyrians in charge, what happens here is they decided the best way to deal with this was to quickly quell every single rebellion, every single revolt. And that becomes an art form in itself. They, they head it down to an art form. Because when it's done right, it's not only effective at putting down the rebellion, it's also very effective at communicating something. So here's what's happening with the Assyrians. Let me just give you a taste of what it looks like. I want to show you a quote. This is from one particular Assyrian king. His name was Asher Ashurnasirpal. Asher and here's what he wrote. It's too long. I won't put it on there. Just you'll just have to listen. Here's what he wrote. After he put down an uprising, this one particular uprising, he was really proud of it. You can just hear his excitement here. He says, "I built a pillar over against his city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar." Some I impaled on the pillar on stakes. I cut off the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their hands, and from others I cut off their noses and ears and their fingers. And of many I put out their eyes. These are the ones that he left alive, see. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, And I bound their heads to tree trunks around the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. Twenty men I captured alive, and I immured them in the wall of the palace. The rest of the warriors I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. This is pretty standard stuff. Pretty gruesome for, for, for these kings, these Assyrian kings. You will not find, if you look in history, you will not find one humanitarian among their kings wasn't in the culture. just wasn't in their DNA. This is how they operated. This is how they stayed in control, total control, because it communicated to everybody that you do not mess with us, either from outside or within, or you will suffer dearly. And the stories of what they would do uh, to another army if, if they captured you, it struck terror in the hearts of, of foreign armies. Um, they mastered the art of destroying a city. After they would go in and destroy a city, uh, defeat, uh, defeat their army, the excavations and what they're finding now, the archaeologists, they say it, it, it's compared to the destruction of a nuclear bomb, except that it was done by hand. It's, it was incredibly time-consuming, their level of destruction, just what just the city, after they beat it, so what they would do is they'd go in, they'd murder and maim most of the population. They'd leave a few alive just to spread the word and spread the fear. But then they would make sure that nothing was recognizable, nothing useful left in the city, not a single thing. They would bring, not, not a single stone would be left on top of, of another, they say. And then what they would do is they would bring thorns and thistles and salt, and they would plant all in the fields in the city and around the city so that nothing again Forever would ever grow there again and nobody could resettle the city. This is just their normal M.O. I read that sometimes they they would even go to the trouble of diverting a river, uh, a nearby river, into the city so that it would completely flood everything. There was no trace left. Why? Why would they do this? Because the number one tool for longevity for an empire is fear, despair total hopelessness that you can ever change anything. that An empire removes every vestige of hope for those who would try to resist the empire. Ironically, at the same time, it promises peace and security for its own citizens as long as they fall in line and obey. So this is what an empire does. This is how an empire stays in power. It still works today, by the way, for, for empires of all shapes and sizes. Now, back to Jonah. It turns out that the Assyrians reserved a very particular kind of evil for the Jewish people when they marched through northern Israel. It was something even more painful for the Jews than death, because the Jews had this very strong sense of of their ethnic identity. They believed very strongly in ethnic purity, the purity of their blood. That was an essential part of their relationship with God, keeping themselves pure in that way. And so what the Assyrians figured out how to do instead, instead of just doing what what Hitler tried to do, just wipe them out, annihilate the race, the Assyrians instead, they purposefully tried to dilute the race. So they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. They forced those Jews to marry Assyrians and have babies. And these offspring, it's very tragic, these offspring were essentially to the Jews a kind of half-breed. That's the way they were thought of, um, half Jew, half Assyrian. And the reason why this is so devastating, it's so cruel, because it ends up, the, the, this whole half-breed generation uh, becomes even more hated than the Assyrians themselves to the Jews. The Jews hate them even more, and the Assyrians hate them, because they're neither, right? Right. Um, and the, the thinking for the Jews was this: If you were a real Jew, then your your parent would never have allowed themselves to be forced to be married. You know, they would have fought and allowed themselves to die before you would marry an Assyrian. So the fact that your parent married an Assyrian means that you are contaminated and you are worse than an Assyrian. So so you have this generation of an entirely new race that's hated now by both nations of people. And it turns out you have what what you may have heard with this group of. Half-breeds eventually became known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans. We see them crop up a few times in different stories in the New Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament, their descendants, centuries later, they make a few cameos, uh, including, of course, the parable that we just looked at with Monagbenosa a few weeks ago, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So that's really the history of why these two groups hate each other so much. So now we can understand maybe a little bit. We can understand a little bit Joseph's posture, his incredible righteous anger. Um, because we're talking about an empire with the political might of a modern superpower <clears throat> and, and the cruelty of ISIS, basically, uh, in, in Jonah's day. Jonah doesn't want them saved. He doesn't want them preserved. He wants them destroyed. To Jonah, that is the only proper thing to do with these people. They're horrible, horrible people. Their only thing is for them to be destroyed. Jonah is furious that God would have compassion on such a brutal society. Because why? It messes with his sense of justice. Right? Right? It goes beyond Jonah just being prejudiced against somebody or someone different than himself. He's truly morally offended that they're being allowed by God to exist. But see, the God of Jonah, what we're seeing way back here in the Old Testament, we're getting a glimpse of Jesus. We're we're seeing that the God of Jonah does not operate the way we think the world is supposed to work. At our core, I think still at our core, no matter how much we appreciate God's grace, especially for ourselves, we usually appreciate that, we still, do we not operate internally according to some kind of a system of karma, you know? You ought to get what you got coming, you know? If you do good, you ought to get good. If you do bad, you ought to get bad, right? It's, it's this idea of karma. It's what lies at the base of our, our sense of justice and rightness. It's this religious philosophy that says what goes around comes around. There's something that just feels right about it. If you do something bad, you're supposed to reap bad. And if you're basically good, mostly good things will happen to you. That's what this idea of karmic debt is. And so if you hurt someone, you're supposed to pay the price for it. That's what justice says. That's the way it's supposed to be. We like that. It feels right. It feels right. It feels just. And every day, God says, that sounds really interesting, but it's not what I offer. Right? Right? And it can be infuriating if you're on the other side. Every day, God takes people who deserve death and punishment and hell, me included, you included, by the way, and he offers us grace. Every day he does this. He says, I give good gifts to everyone because that's how my love works. And I'm sorry, he says, I'm sorry if this messes with you guys, but but that's how I roll. Because his love is so much bigger than we can imagine. And here's the really tough part. If you thought that was kind of tough to swallow, here's the tough part for some folks to wrap their mind around. It's one thing if God's going to do something um, as baffling as forgive guilty people. That's one thing. All right. But then he calls us to forgive. You and me. He calls us to forgive people who by any natural sense of justice or karma, deserve not forgiveness, but condemnation, right? He calls us us to forgive. And And he doesn't seem to give us any wiggle room either. Here's an interesting point. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's an action. Forgiveness is an action. It's a choice. So you can say, how can I forgive? I still feel hurt by this right? So we feel like I can't forgive them yet because I'm still, I'm still feeling it, right? I've still got this thing, so I can't forgive them yet, right? Don't we often do that? I've, I've thought that before, but that's okay to still be hurt because forgiveness is an action. It's an action. It's even embedded in the word itself. It's forgive. It's not for feel. Right? It's forgive. It's not, I, I'm not forfeeling you. I am forgiving. See, you're, you're giving a gift when you forgive someone. It's usually one that is not deserved. That's kind of the point. When you forgive, it's not deserved. And it may still even hurt. But you're forgiving. It's often a gift. This is really hard. It's often a gift that no one's asked for. Sometimes they haven't come up and said, "I'm I blew it. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me?" Well, all right. Sometimes they're running away. They're fine. And we have to choose to give that gift to somebody running away from us. That makes it hard, doesn't it? The next thing that we need to know about forgiveness is that once you do it, you're free. Once you forgive, you will be free. Um, It's almost impossible to see on the the front side of forgiveness, but afterwards you experience freedom. It gives you freedom. Freedom from the pain. Freedom from the outrage. Freedom from your own prison. Forgiveness is, is setting someone free and realizing that that person that you set free was yourself. That's what forgiveness is. And lastly, forgiveness opens the door to a whole new force that you never expected On the front side of it Love Forgiveness opens the door to love Because, because what, what's happening Through you is you're, you're, you're this conduit God's love Is his, the love that he has for you And then that love From you to that person that you forgave It extends out So forgiveness is not a feeling But it leads to a whole bunch of other feelings That's important to know It does lead to a whole bunch of other feelings. Good feelings. Forgiveness is an act. It's a decision. So disengage the emotions from it, if this is you today. Because emotions aren't relevant to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a slave to your emotions. Okay? Forgiveness is not a slave. But but your emotions will follow forgiveness. It's just an amazing thing, the way God made you. God designed them to do that. So, now, okay. Okay. Back to our, our story. Uh, ha- have you ever grown up, how many of you had like a, a big, maybe you were little and you had a big brother or somebody who kind of sat behind you and flicked your earlobe like over and over and over and over. Or yeah, you, Or they, they did the I'm not touching you thing with the finger right here. I'm not touching you. Okay, this is what Jonah is about to experience here. Um, just this little flick. It's, it's pretty funny. Verse five. It says Jonah had gone out He's mad, remember. He's really upset. He's gone out and sat on a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's sitting in the dirt. Here he is. He's alone. He's sulking. He's watching the city. He's still hoping. He's still holding out hope that God is going to ultimately destroy it and that he is going to have a good seat to watch the carnage. He's ready. Right? He makes himself a little seat to watch the show. In verse 6, Then the Lord provided a leafy plant. God's so good. He loves people. He provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head because he was getting a sunburn to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. This is the first mention of Jonah being happy about something. And the thing he's all fuzzy about is a plant. This plant provides shade for Jonah's head that was burning in the sun. And Jonah likes his new pet plant very much, doesn't he? Yes, good plant. Yes, you are. My good widow plant. Nobody understands me but you, plant. <laughs> and, okay, you know, I know I'm a little warped, but I, I just know God is sitting up there going, oh, this is going to be good. Y'all watch this. <laughs> this is- This is going to be good. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, the very next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. These are the same words that God provided the storm. He provided a fish. Now he's providing a plant, then he provides a worm, now he provides the scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Notice, Jonah will not get up. He will not go find shade, right? Has anybody ever raised this child? Um. He's sitting there. He is in defiance of of God. He wanted to die. We've heard this before. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Even if he dies, he doesn't care. He is that bitter. He is the pouting prophet. The pouting prophet. But God said to Jonah, we've heard this. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? (laughs) It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. This is the third time. Um, here we go, did I put that yet? Okay. So, so God's messing with Jonah. I really believe God is messing with Jonah. Uh, but look at the deeper reality here. See, God loves, he loves a million sinners in Nineveh, and he has moved on this whole story to, to send his word to deliver them. He loves those people. He loves people. But even with these uh, enormous events on this large scale going on, God is also so personal. He loves this sad, bitter little man. He loves him so much that he won't let him go either. Because God is relentless, isn't he? He's relentless. Um, We get the, the clearest picture here of this. It's, it's almost unbearable, the patience of God, the, the relentless will of a Lord who loves us. The next two verses of the story here, God gets the last word. He lays bare all of Jonah's sin. He reveals that all of his self-righteousness doesn't hold a candle to God's all-consuming love. And Jonah is reminded eventually here that God does not love us because we are lovely. Amen? That's not why he loves us. He loves us because he is love. Verse ten, the Lord said, "You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern? That word is is means compassion or pity for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals." <laughs> okay. And now turn the page to keep reading how the story ends. Oh, sorry, there's nothing else. Gotcha. Right? Awesome. This is it. This is the end of the book. This is the all-time number one weirdest ending to a story in the Bible. Okay? I don't mind saying. It's like you're sure there was a chapter five somewhere, and it, it got mixed up with the stuff that went to Goodwill or something. And they were like, well, I guess we'll never know how it ends. Um... Okay, be honest. Brief Sunday school review here. If I were to ask you a month ago before we started this, is the book of Jonah, that story about the guy getting swallowed by a fish, how many of you might have went, yeah, that's the one. Yeah? Yeah, 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 that's the one. And if I would have said to you, now how does the book end? How many of you would have said, and be honest, and also many animals? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right? Probably not. you would be going, no, surely not. That can't be the ending of the book, right? Jonah like slaps his knee and says, you know what? You're right, God. I've been ridiculous. And he goes down into the city and he like walks into a pub and buys a round for everybody. And the, the camera like freeze frames with everybody up in the air, <laughs> high-fiving, and they all rejoiced and praised God or something. That's the way, that's the way it ends, surely. Um, no, it doesn't. Um, it ends with, and also many animals... There's no Steven Spielberg feel-good feel ending to this story. It ends with God asking Jonah a question, a question that goes unanswered, right? And it's left hanging for all eons of eternity. A question. It doesn't end with this massive crescendo of revival that broke out in Nineveh. Um, across the city, it doesn't end with some booming voice of God, you know, with one last message to the world. It ends with a question about people and animals, which results from this strange, petty little argument about a plant, and then awkward silence. And the title character in this story comes out looking pretty bad, right? Which is remarkable, too, because most experts believe that the writer of Jonah, it's probably Jonah, probably Jonah, why? Why is the story in this way? Because Jonah is not the hero of this story. God is the hero. God gets the final word. The story of Jonah is about God. His revealing his love to us. His revealing his patience, his long-suffering. We get this very honest glimpse here of exactly how gracious God really is how messed up Jonah is. And, and we see what kind of self-righteous racist pig he really is, and, that, and what he would be without God. We get a glimpse of what a bitter man he would be, and that God loves him enough to keep pursuing him. And I have to believe that God kept pursuing him after that final question, and that eventually Jonah became a holy man, especially if he wrote this, right? I think eventually he came to himself. And so that's the question that Jonah leaves us to ponder. Who would we be if God simply left us to ourselves and stopped running after us? I know who I would be. It wouldn't be pretty at all. Because like Jonah and his plant, see, God reminds us that we so often love things. We love the things that God sent us. We love those things more than the great city that he has sent us to. We love our stuff. We love our homes, our cars, hobbies, health. We love our friends more than the spiritually blind people that are all around us that we pass by every single day and we ignore because we don't like to be bothered. We like our stuff. We like our plant a lot better than the people around us in our circles. Who, who is my neighbor? I don't really care. I like my stuff, I like my plant. We love our idols of happiness more than we love God himself. Uh, I told you in the very first week of this, you know, each year on the the celebration of Yom Kippur in Israel, the Jewish people, they gather in synagogues to read this book. And they read Jonah together. It's just like 42 verses or so. And, And when they read this, at each point in the story, they all reply in unison, We are Jonah. They read it and they reply, We are Jonah. We are Jonah. Church, we are Jonah. There's a reason, Generations Church, why we live in an area that has more churches per square mile than any other place on earth, and yet our city is still filled with spiritually bankrupt people because we are Jonah. See, we're the ones sitting by and waiting for the end times, for the judgment to fall, waiting for the fire to fall, for judgment to get a move on, waiting for someone maybe to pass laws to, to make it more comfortable for us or to pass laws so that unchurched people will know what's moral and not because we really don't want to tell them. So please pass some laws that will make it easier so people will know what's, what's right and wrong because we are Jonah. We'd rather not engage with society. All the while, people are around us every day who cannot tell their right hand from their left, spiritually speaking. Christians, so many of us seem to be always waiting on something. We're waiting on something. Meanwhile, God is patiently pursuing. God's not waiting on anything. He's pursuing, and he's wondering, are you guys going to catch up? Right, we look for justice from our oppressors so many times I'm not just talking about big grand things sometimes just in our everyday dealings with people we look for justice meanwhile God is busy forgiving our oppressors and convicting their hearts so that they'll turn to him we're like Jonah we're like Jonah when God has called us to become like Christ we need to stop being Jonah and I'm talking to myself here too And start being Jesus. That's what we're called to become. Like Jesus. We're Jonah when we wrongly believe that we're more righteous than other people. Because we've suffered. Or or we're more righteous because we haven't suffered. Or because we're young. Or because we're older. Or because we're black. Or we're white or we're rich, or we're poor, or we're male, or female, or educated, or not educated. So we're more righteous. We're a success, or we're a failure, or, or, or even we're from America, or we're from somewhere else. What we are is Jonah. We have been sent to preach repentance to a great and wicked city that's in our backyard. we've got to experience some repentance for ourselves first, some of us. Before we go preach Christ crucified, we've got to crucify our self-righteousness. We've got to surrender to that all-consuming grace of a loving God that engulfs us. We need to go to him and say, I am Jonah and Jesus, I need your mercy daily. I need your mercy daily. See, the book of Jonah is not about a fish. It's it's not even about Jonah at all. It's about the consuming grace of God. It's about us. It's about this mission that God has given us. His grace for the world. The world in all of its wickedness and his grace for you and me and all of our pettiness and all of our fears. God has grace for you and me. He still loves us. He loves us so much. He patiently pursued Jonah to the ends of the earth and he wouldn't let him go. Rather than destroy Jonah for disobeying, he pursued him and he rescued Jonah from himself. And and when it came to the city, he allowed his anger to melt away. And when Jonah acted like a psychopathic spoiled child, God's patience pursued him and talked to him gently lovingly. He wasn't content to let Jonah die a bitter man. And I like to believe Jonah didn't die a bitter man. Knowing this God, knowing how relentless he is. And you know what Jonah would probably agree with you? If you said that God's patience and his grace is almost unbearable at times, Jonah would go, yeah, I've been there. Because God just won't relent. He won't relent. Because he loves you. He loves you so much. His grace is lavish. His grace is absurd. It's almost wasteful. His grace is excessive. It's limitless. Limitless. That's God's grace. So today God has revealed himself. This is a gift for us. It's a gift for me. It's a convicting gift. Some of it is funny and some of it stings a little bit, but it's a gift from the Lord. He reveals himself through this story to us. If we'll have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are open and we'll receive it. And his message to us is this. If, if you're here today and you're far from God, his message to you is you can run, but you cannot hide from my love. You cannot hide from my love. And his message to you and me who maybe don't feel that far from God. We thought we were pretty good. We thought we were pretty in tight with God. His message to us is, I will not give up on this city that I have called you to. I will not give up on this city, this community. God's not going to give up. And he's going to stay after us. Because he loves us this much, he loves our community this much. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Father, we love you, and I humbly come before you, Lord, and I am as guilty as anybody, Father, of being Jonah. Every day, every day, there's ways that I turn aside from people instead of moving towards them, instead of engaging them. And I thank you, Lord God, that more and more as we seek your face and as we seek your will and we seek to be more like Jesus instead of Jonah, we thank you, Father God, that you will reveal those times. Help us to see those moments in the day when we have a choice before us so that we can make the right choice, so that we can make that right decision, Father God. Keep bringing the people before us. Keep putting them in our path. Don't give up, Father. We thank you, Lord God, that you are relentless. Keep putting them in front of us, Father. Give us a chance to be the words of Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people. Help us to love people the way you love them. Break our heart, God, for what breaks yours, Lord. Don't let us be satisfied with just going through Christian motions. Father God, turn all of us into disciples who make disciples that nobody should walk alone give us a passion for that lord help us to see the reality of that the way you see it and to see the fullness of it the way you see it help us to see that let that be ever on our lips no one's going to walk alone around me i'm going to make disciples i commit to that in front of you and all these people lord today in jesus name we pray Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward now. I love you guys. I appreciate you all so much. And hallelujah. Let's give the Lord a hand. The Lord is good all the time. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. There's a reason why the scripture says that, isn't it? His mercy endures forever. If there is anything anything at all. You need somebody to stand with you and pray about, someone you need to get off your chest, and you're like, I am tired of walking alone in this. I need somebody else to walk with me in prayer and in faith. I encourage you, come down forward to one of these awesome prayer uh, warriors down here, and they will pray with you, uh, because it's not the same when you pray. Things happen in the spiritual realm when we pray. Amen? Amen. You guys have a wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you Tuesday night. I hope to see you Tuesday night for prayer. Wednesday night we have church. And then we'll see you next Sunday. All right. Bye, guys.